And this week in Accountable Care on the Blog Talk Radio and Affiliate Networks is brought to you by National ACO. National ACO, one of 44 participants admitted as a next-generation model ACO by the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, is experiencing strong growth, was nation-leading in its first performance year, and has logged five years of successful operations is leading innovation in value-based health care, alternative payment models, and proactive population health management. Welcome, everyone. I'm Greg Masters, the producer and moderator of this broadcast, known to some on Twitter as At2HealthGuru, and the publisher of ACOWatch.com. I'm joined in the virtual studio by national ACO founders, co-founders Dr. Andre Berger, CEO, and Dr. Alex Foxman, President and Chief Medical Officer. And now for today's special guest. David Muelstein, Ph.D., J.D., is the Chief Research Officer at Levitt Partners, the firm founded by Governor Mike Levitt upon his transition from the post as Secretary of Health and Human Services. Governor Levitt put an idea into motion that he believed could bring clarity and value to a rapidly changing U.S. healthcare system. The idea was to create a healthcare intelligence gathering and filtering process modeled after what the former secretary observed used in the National Intelligence Service to advise presidential decision-making. Based in Washington, D.C., David Muelstein directs the study of accountable care organizations through the Levitt Partners Center for Accountable Care Intelligence and leads the firm's quantitative evaluation of healthcare markets. He is an expert in using policy analysis, predictive modeling, and applied analytics to understand the evolving healthcare landscape. David also serves as adjunct assistant professor at the Dartmouth Institute at the Giselle School of Medicine at Dartmouth College, is a visiting policy fellow at the Margulis Center for Health Policy at Duke University, and is a visiting fellow at the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. In these roles, he conducts research to translate the learnings of high-performing organizations for benefit of the broader healthcare system. David earned his doctorate in health services management and policy, JD, MHA, and MS from The Ohio State University, and a BA from Brigham Young University. And with that introduction, Drs. Berger and Foxman, over to you. Help us get to know David his work at Levitt Partners, and take on the state of the accountable care industry. Uh, David, uh, so delighted to have you join us today on the show. Um, very excited about it. I know that you have been really focused on trying to take a deep dive in terms of understanding the complexities of value-based uh, models versus uh, the more traditional fee-for-service models. But could you give us a bit of a thumbnail um, of the, um, the mission, let's say, and the nature of the work that you've been doing at Levitt Partners, and more specifically, what's your role in the company with regards to driving this under new, you know, kind of understanding of uh, the possibilities in value-based care. Well, first, thank you for having me on the show. It's great to be able to talk and to, uh, to spend some time with both of all three of you, I should say. So Levitt Partners, as Greg mentioned, was 
created as a, as a healthcare intelligence firm with the intent of helping people understand how the healthcare system is changing and evolving. But we are a, a mission-driven for-profit organization with a mission of advancing value. So when Governor Levitt was the Secretary of Health and Human Services, he made it a personal goal to get value into the lexicon of the healthcare system. It was in 2006-2007 timeframe when people really weren't talking about value. The whole concept was foreign because it was all about the volume of services that you were providing. And so the mission of the organization is to further the adoption of value. And what we mean by that is the triple aim. So better access or better uh, quality, better um, outcomes and lower costs. Um, and uh, and satisfaction, I should uh, is part of the experience of care for everyone. Now, what I do is try to understand how payment reform drives delivery reform. Now, it's a pretty concise statement, but there's a lot that, that's loaded into that. Really what we're trying to do is understand what changes are happening with the delivery of care across the healthcare system, recognizing that many of these changes are happening because of new payment models. So the theory, of course, being that if you pay hospitals and physician groups differently, then they're going to behave differently, which is going to lead to different outcomes. The trick is to get the right payment models that are aligned with the providers in a way that allows them to further the, the quality care that they would like to, to deliver in a way that leads to better outcomes and lower costs. And so we spend a lot of time tracking organizations that are starting to make these changes, studying the payment models, doing evaluations of programs, um, and really trying to identify core uh, skill sets and competencies that are necessary for people to effectively transition to a, an accountable care mindset or to a value-focused mindset. So, David, uh, Levitt, Part Levitt Partners spends a lot of time tracking and publishing growth and dispersion of ACOs, so talking just about ACOs as, as the value-based models. Can you walk us through what you believe is the ACO trajectory of growth and perhaps comment on the growth of the overall sector in, in healthcare as it relates to ACOs? Sure. So we're certainly known for our ACO tracking, but we're involved with all sorts of different uh, value-based payment models, so including bundles and, and other variations within that. But on the ACO side, the, what really separates an ACO from the episodic-based model is that it requires the provider, the responsible provider, to be aware of how care is being delivered across a continuum of locations and recognizing all of the different care delivery partners that are part of that, everything from primary care doctors to hospitals to post-acute care to behavioral health to uh, rehab, all of the different providers that are necessary to care for a population with their health care needs. And so what we try to do is um, recognize what, what changes they're making and how those changes can be modeled and implemented uh, throughout the world. So a few observations of what we've seen so far. First is that right now there's a lot of activity. We're tracking about a thousand different ACOs right now. And these range in size from small primary care practices that might only have a couple of dozen providers that are involved, physicians and physician extenders, to large multi-state, uh, multi-hospital systems that are, you know, they might have 30 hospitals that are a part of them. And as you can imagine, there's a lot of differences that, that go into managing the population from a few dozen primary care docs to a system that might have 2,000 different doctors that are involved with it. Uh, 
But what we found is that there's uh, certain competencies that are necessary to be able to do that. And so identifying what they are and then trying to disseminate them is, is really how we believe it will help the model be able to take root. One of the big trends that we're noticing, though, is a challenge. And the challenge has to do with the business model. There is a very strong business model to experiment with accountable care. And what I mean by that is organizations are worried that it might be forced on them at some time. They might have a very positive outlook of accountable care and saying, we want to get paid for managing populations and how we've always wanted to practice medicine, if you will. Um, but a lot of different reasons to experiment with it. The challenge that we're seeing right now is that we're really kind of plateauing in a, an experimentation phase where we've got a thousand different organizations that have these models, but very few of them have really made a strategy where a majority of all of their income is coming through these value-based or risk-based models where they're responsible for defined population. And the reason I think is that there's not a clear business model yet of why you would want to make that transition when for most providers, and definitely not all of them, but for the majority of these ACOs that we're tracking and studying and talking with, they're still receiving the bulk of their money through fee-for-service, which means that if they want to fulfill their mission and keep the lights on, they try to maximize their revenue, which is living in a fee-for-service world, which is focusing on heads and beds and increasing the volume of services. And so while there's a lot of good learnings that are going on for the delivery side of care, I really think that to see a major push, a major growth in ACOs across the country, we're going to need to see a clear articulation of what the business model is and how that business model can fit everything from small physician practices to the largest integrated delivery network. So I, I think that's what we're, we're hopefully going to see over the next few years is the adoption, the articulation of these business models. Well, uh, thank you. That, that's very good insight. Um, so I have a few kind of follow-up questions to that. Um, you know, time is a, is a very important commodity, but time is also very important in terms of, um, you know, getting the appropriate data from an experiment that will actually, um, you know, drive um, appropriate kind of models and decisions. And um, so my question to you is, what, what are you uh, understanding from what's going on in kind of this incubator, this, this experimental kind of uh, situation we have here and trying to gel out kind of some of the best practices? How much time do you think it's going to take um, to get enough of this uh, kind of what works information and then, you know, start to, shall we say, see significant implementation of that? Um, obviously, this is not a, it's a long-term play. It can't be done. You can't turn the Titanic on a dime. But the question is, you know, what's it going to take in terms of time frame in order to make that happen? Mm -hmm. Great question. So when I look at the timing, I think of two different factors. One is how long does it take an organization to make that shift? And then second, how long does that, or, or how does it long to take a market or the, the nation as a whole to make that shift? And so I'll start with the organizational level and then move to kind of that market level, national level. When you look at an organization, we've talked to quite a few um, organizations that have, I would say, previously made that transition. Um, many of them were driven by the 
the externalities that existed within their local market. So, for example, there might have been a um, – there was primarily a Medicaid player, and the Medicaid agency within their state required them to start to take full risk and become basically a, a managed care organization and being a, the, the health care provider at the same time. And so they were fully at risk, and so they had the impetus to make the transition. Others have done this even decades earlier, where they've taken full risk for populations. We've seen this um, in a, a handful of pockets around the country, primarily in Southern California, where we've seen some organizations that have done this previously. When we talk to these entities, they really talk about a 10-year time frame. And the 10-year doesn't mean that there's a clear start and a clear end, but it means that there's a really apparent difference between when they started out and 10 years later when they've really changed their culture away from the volume of services, just kind of treating the issue to managing a population and having the right technology systems in place, having the right care coordinators that have been, coordinators that have been trained and are, are helping to integrate and manage these populations, as well as having a staff that really buys into this concept of, I'm not an individual on an island. I'm not a doctor that can't, can do everything by myself. It is we are a care team spanning multiple different locations and collectively we need to work together. And I think that last part, that cultural change, is actually what takes the longest. Uh, we see that a lot of ACOs are able to get their technology systems up and going in the first two to three years. Um, some are faster, some are slower, but I'd say most can do it in that two to three year time frame. But getting that culture to change, where people are really focusing on the quality and focusing on the collaboration and recognizing the different needs and different preferences of the patients that they're treating is something that's certainly not quick. Um, but over the course of five, eight, ten years, you can see major changes with how the organization practices. Now, that's one organization. When we go to that market-level question, it's an issue of how fast can this adoption occur. And what we've seen is that typically, um, just with the, the diffusion of innovation, you've probably seen this curve before where there's um, innovators, people that start out at the very beginning of this curve that are just starting to experiment, and then there's a rapid rush where many people start to follow suit, and then there's uh, another flow, the laggards, that, that come at the end. We're still in that model of those trailblazers, those innovators, those people that are just figuring this out. And within a market, after they have both shown the delivery model to be successful and made the business case for it, we expect that markets will, will start to follow after them. But my guess is that it's probably about a five-year delay. So when you see an organization, a leading organization within a market that has really made a commitment to this, about five years afterward, the, country, or the, the market as a whole will start to make a similar commitment but then they're on that same 10-year time frame. So I imagine that 15 years from now, if we have uh, you know, another follow-up conversation, we'll see that the healthcare system has really shifted quite significantly to this new model of managing populations and really approaching it in a different way. So, so actually, gleaning on this as well, um, you know, we at National ACO also really believe in forward thinking and, and changing the way medicine has been uh, moving forward. And we believe that by, by going back and trying to use the same types of recipes, so to speak, uh, to, to uh, drive change in the future is not going to work. So what do you think is, in your opinion, that secret sauce that, that allows ACOs, both commercial and government, to really move forward and be successful 
as opposed to those who don't? Yeah, it's a great question. I wish there was just one simple answer and said, you do this and you're going to solve the, the issue. Um, I would put it in three major buckets that I think are areas that there's a real opportunity for improvement. The first one has to do with a, a cultural change. And I mentioned it a little bit before, but it's the culture change where people, um, all of the providers within the organization collectively accept responsibility. And I mean this differently than financial responsibility. So somebody might be on the hook financially, So, but a, a primary care doctor seeing 20 patients in a day or 30 patients in a day is not going to be thinking about what they need to do to make the organization as a whole save money. But if they have accepted internally responsibility for the quality outcomes of their population, and they know who their members are, who their, their people are that they're treating, and who the other providers are and part of the team, they start to behave differently. The challenge that we've seen, though, is that, as in the history of humanity, change is hard. Organizational change is really hard, and it's no different within healthcare. And so really getting people to start to think about care differently is a major challenge. The second key is effectively using technology to not just identify and track, but preempt um, concerns that need to be there, that, that could occur. And this involves more than just electronic medical records, which I really view as largely digitized paper notes with a, a revenue cycle function hooked onto them. But it has to do with the predictive analytics. It has to do with population management. It has to do with understanding where people are being treated when they're not in the line of sight of the, the physicians, when they're not in the physician's office, what's going on and what the opportunities are. But that requires further, I mean, significant improvements in the system, and not just the capabilities of them, but making it so they're useful in the workflow. Because you can have the most amazing platform in the world, but if nobody wants to use it, it's not going to help. So improving the, the delivery of care, and then being able to, excuse me, the, the technology to improve the delivery of care, but then working it into the, to the normal everyday processes so that it's actually useful and is able to identify where the needs are and where the opportunities are. That's the second opportunity. The third uh, really has to do with leadership. And what I mean by leadership is an understanding of what the mission is and what really is going to be necessary to effect the change. So an example of that is when we think of value-based care, we think of the opportunity of trying to improve the outcomes while lowering the cost of care. That means a completely separate approach from what's traditionally been the focus of most, I would say, executives as well as their boards that are saying what we need to do is improve our market share, improve our, our capacity, um, you know, doing a higher value, higher reimbursed services and the like, but really saying, what we need to do is increase our size, not by just providing new services, but because we provide the services in a better way and at a lower cost price point, we are the provider of choice that should be working with all of the employers within the market whether and working with the government payers. And really, it's the, the concept of the successful organizations that succeed through better outcomes and lower costs start to gain market share that way, at the expense of other people's market share. But that's really not the mindset that very many leaders have. And so being able to have people that really see that vision, being able to share that vision, and then being able to implement it 
is a skill set that's certainly not as common or as prevalent as it needs to be across the country. Well, uh, thank you. That that certainly resonates hugely with us, um, and we couldn't agree more. So I really appreciate that, hearing that from you. And um, I do I do totally love your focus on culture. We do believe that that is the essence of what will drive uh, us forward. Question, uh, how do you see the role, for example, of, uh, of next-gen ACOs uh, to leverage this um, needed change in culture and also technology inside uh, the current uh, volume-based fee-for-service model, and how does that compare uh, to the already, um, you know, somewhat, um, you know, experienced um, Medicare Advantage um, track? Mm-hmm. So when I look at the next generation ACOs, I really view them as the furthest that Medicare, given the constraints of the fee-for-service system, is able to push risk toward providers. And so there's the the capitation option for second-year next-gen ACOs that allows them to really take as much risk as you possibly can while still allowing full choice of, of going to any willing provider for care. I think that's going to teach... Uh, or we're going to be able to learn from that a handful of things. One is, can you come up with a payment model that is viable underneath a a fee-for-service chassis? So there's all sorts of things that you can build on top of the fee-for-service chassis, but if it's not going to work, providers really have the financial power to manage the population as they see fit, not just based on billing codes, if they're, able, if they're not able to do another next-generation model, then I really think we need to look beyond the fee-for-service chassis and saying, let's look to prospective payments with capitation or other forms of, of, of payment models. So that's one key learning. When we look at the technology side and the, the data side, I really view the next-generation ACOs as they have an opportunity to hopefully um, learn some of those those hard lessons about what works and what they're able to get and what's useful that will kind of prepare the way in a sense for other organizations that follow them. So um, you remember the the Pioneer ACOs. The Pioneers came out a few months before the Medicare ACOs, and they uh, had, I would say, uh, a harder time because they were really figuring out a lot of things with CMS that, um, not to say that the MSSPs didn't have to, to go through a learning process, but some of the issues had been solved and been addressed in, in advance. And so I, I really think that the next generation ACOs, that they are able to identify where there's opportunities to work with CMS to get their, their feed files and really figure out what's useful and what's not. Um, obviously, there's a challenge with disseminating it. There's um, always opportunities to um, learn together as a group, which, you know, are not always happening as often as they could. Um, but, but I do think that they have a chance to, I guess, learn some of those hard lessons that then could be more broadly put into the, the rest of the Medicare program. Yeah, well, one of the draws that, uh, that we had for the next generation ACO model were the relaxation of many of the rules and regulations, the benefit enhancements such as the population-based payment, the all-inclusive population-based payment opportunities, the three-day SNF waiver, uh, the telehealth waiver, 
all of these different opportunities to really, uh, really achieve this triple aim in a more uh, unified, uh, uh, structured uh, fashion, but also allowing individual, individual physicians to still continue to be individuals. What other types of enhancements do you believe would greatly benefit our current healthcare system that are currently not implemented to help us achieve the triple aim? Yeah, so there's a lot of them. So I, I think one of those, it goes back to starting to teach culture. Um, and so when we go to medical school and, and kind of look at how they're teaching and their kind of methodology is they teach the basic sciences. Uh, they teach a little bit about kind of healthcare policy and some of the issues, but it's a very small piece of it. But they don't talk about uh, the business side and talk about all of the the um, all of the different care providers and how they interact with the system, um, you know, on, on a daily basis. Most physicians, when they're going through their, their academic training, have never been forced to, I shouldn't even say forced, not even been given the opportunity to engage meaningfully with a, a series of, of everybody from respiratory therapists to, uh, to behavioral health providers and seeing where they practice, what they're doing, um, where care is being delivered across the system. And so th they don't know it, but they know is what they've been taught, which is kind of practicing on an island. And so I think the medical education needs to do a better job of preparing people for the modern world where no single physician can do everything that a patient needs and no single group of physicians can do everything that a population needs. And so that's one area is certainly trying to improve um, that, that medical education component and recognizing it's not enough to teach the basic sciences. We need to teach healthcare systems and processes and how you work together. So that's one. The second has to do with the with making enough payment models that are available for all providers to have a way to start to, to focus on value. So it doesn't make sense for everybody to take a population-based payment. But the advantage of having bundled payments or episodic payments is that it encourages efficiency within that episode of care. And if you're an orthopedic surgeon doing knee replacement, it doesn't make sense for you to try to take responsibility for the entire cost of that, that patient. But it makes a lot of, of sense for you to have responsibility for everything related to that episode of having the knee replaced and the, the, the physical therapy following that. And there are a lot of providers right now that do not have any payment models that they can, that are, that are really value focused. And so increasing the breadth of these and recognizing all of the different types of care providers out there that are getting paid right now, they need to have models that, that are unique for them. Right now there are over 90 different types of providers, um, specialties that are getting paid by Medicare. And there aren't payment models that are advanced payment models that cover even half of them. And so we need a lot more models because there is a lot of different types of care that's being delivered. Not everybody fits within an ACO. So that's the second one is the, the breadth of the payment models. The third one is sufficient volume of payments that could be available through these models that you can start to make a business case for. As we've talked to providers, there's been a range of about from about 30% to 60% of revenue is um, the minimum that you need before you can really make a financial case where you're better off trying to limit the volume of services you're providing. And right now there's an inadequate um, volume of dollars available. And so CMS 
could start partnering and doing more alignment with the commercial payers so that you can have more comparable models. This could be the, the commercial payers adopting very similar uh, models to CMS, but it could also be uh, the other way around where CMS looks at successful commercial models and starts to uh, adopt those. But until you have a, uh, a meaningful number of payers that are all offering similar models that allow you to move a bulk of the, the revenue toward this risk-based model, it's just impossible to make the numbers work. And so we needed the opportunity to have larger volumes of, of dollars flow through these models. Uh, thank you so much. That, that was very, very insightful, and I really appreciate uh, that comment. Um, I think we're almost out of time here for today. We've got less than a minute left, and I think I probably just wanted to spend the last less than a minute just wrapping up. Um, and, you know, there's so much more to talk about. You've been such an amazing guest. Uh, I want to just invite you in advance to please come back soon and continue the conversation. There's so many more questions, and, 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 and there's so much more we want to pick your brain on. Um, and I think one of the next topics of conversation when you come on next time is to how do you piece a lot of this together and create what we believe is missing in the market, and that is alignment. Alignment. Um, because the culture to date does not really optimize alignment. Would you be interested in talking about that? Absolutely, and I look forward to returning. Okay, well, we want to thank you. Um, it's been great to have you as a guest, and we really appreciate it. Thank you, thank you so much, David. And there you have it. That'll have to be the last word for today's broadcast. I want to thank our guest, David Muelstein, the Chief Research Officer at Levitt Partners, for his time and insights today. Stay current with Levitt Partners' work on Twitter via at Levitt, and that's L-E-A-V-I-T-T, Partners, and on the web via www.levittpartners.com. Finally, do follow National ACO on the web via www.nacomso, and on Twitter via the same handle. Our next show is uh, October 17th with Alladade founder and CEO, Dr. Farzad Mastashari, followed by August, uh, excuse me, October 31st, The Witching Hour, with former acting CMS administrator, Andy Slavitt. Until we meet again on This Week in Accountable Care for Drs. Berger and Foxman, this is your moderator, Greg Masters, saying goodbye. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.